So we're going to continue with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series today. And we are now uh, moving, uh, continuing in element six. Element six is about receiving Jesus Christ, responding to the gospel. And in element six, we're on part J. So uh, do the math, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. I guess that's the 10th part on element six. So if you look at uh, Roman numeral five, element six is, is uh, there's some summary of some of the key words. What we're doing first is, you know, 1 Corinthians 2 talks about how we do combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, and you need biblical vocabulary to understand Scripture. And one of the problems in our modern times is, you know, for a number of reasons, uh, we most of us aren't acclimated to the fact that the writers of the New Testament were Hebrew-minded people who saw it as their responsibility to be uh, reinterpreting what the Old Testament always had said, but was not, but they were, but Israel was unavailable to see, unable to see, I should say. They weren't available, but they weren't unable to see. Uh, until the veil was removed in Christ, and they could see in Christ. And so, um, you know, the New Testament is, is a continuation of the way of life and worldview and so forth of the Old Testament, but it's written in a brand new language, uh, Koine Greek. And Koine Greek is, um, uh, was the street Greek spoken at the time, not this, not uh, the same as classical Greek. So if you would study Plato or uh, Socrates, or if you'd study any of the Greek playwrights, Aristophanes, Euripides, whatever, you would um, you would be reading classical Greek. And uh, and a good analogy might be uh, modern American versus classical English from the 17th and 18th century, uh, when a culture. Uh, all languages change, sometimes they have a tendency to decline if the culture is declining. Or sometimes they tend to move away from a Christian worldview. If you want somewhat of a feel for that, everyone should have on their, uh, have, make sure you have on your, uh, you know, like how you save at the top of your browser, your favorite websites, make sure you have Webster's 1828 Dictionary and uh, the original American Dictionary. And it's a free, it's a freebie anyway, <clears throat> although you can buy it in Kindle and all that kind of stuff if you want. But <clears throat> you'll, you'll really be amazed at how words have changed in our culture, especially any words that have to do, do with a Judeo-Christian worldview and way of thinking and, and theology and so forth. So <clears throat> anyway, so what we're doing in this part uh, of Element 6 uh, is that we're just trying to, sorry, i got a scratch in my throat. I, hope, I can't seem to get it shaken off. Uh, we're trying to look at <clears throat> key words that have to do with soteriology, that is, the doctrines of salvation. And we've looked at, we're really keying on the verse, uh, John 1, 11 through 13, but to all who did receive him, to them he gave the right, or which the exousia means power and authority, uh, to become children of God, so in, who are born not of the will of flesh. In other words, they are born of the will of God. If you're in Christ, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, we're going to look at today, you're in Christ because God chose to uh, draw you, convict you, and he granted you repentance that leads to life. And, uh, 
and he uh, so he rescued you. So when you receive Jesus Christ, that really involves two concepts. One is regeneration or the new birth, being born again, having your spirit, which according to the Bible was outside of fellowship with God, uh, and now has come into fellowship with God. Your spirit begin to sense and know and experience the presence of God. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And he, he actually defined coming to Christ in John 5. He said, a time is coming and now is when the dead will hear my voice and those who hear my voice will live. If you, uh, you remain an unbeliever, essentially, unless you're actually at a place where you spiritually experience the presence of God and hear his voice and know it's God's voice and know it's scriptural because you've done enough study in scripture and, and so forth. And uh, that is the essence of what Christ died for in all of our Western unbelief and anti-supernaturalism and in the doctrines that we've developed to to kind of explain away why our faith doesn't look much like the faith of the Gospels in the New Testament, uh, doctrines like cessationism and doctrines like the third wave, uh, which is the, the idea that the Holy Spirit still does stuff, but we just haven't seen it, and it's not right to, exp to focus on that and stuff. You need to know, be filled with, and experience the Holy Spirit. That happens at regeneration, and it's... Uh, further released in your life with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so um, that has to do, the first word is to, of receiving Jesus Christ is regeneration. You begin to know his voice. That, that doesn't mean you just that you intellectually have prayed the sinner's prayer and that you've attended a church and that you even read your Bible and have tur morally turned your life around. It means you experientially know God and you know his power and his presence. And I would encourage you, if that's not, I'm finding out as we travel, things were quite different when I ministered in the 70s and 80s than they are today. And I'm finding out more and more and more, uh, you know, good, good Christian people who go to church, been Christians a lot of time, uh, try to live their faith seriously and so forth, but they don't know the power and presence of God. You, if, if that's the case for you, you need to cry out to God. You need to say, have mercy on me. You need to say, come into my life in a more tangible, more powerful, more real way. And what's kind of amazing to me uh, sometimes, I've actually known people who have seemingly very good character, uh, who just really have trouble hearing God's voice. And I've known people who have really lousy character who are very sensitive to the presence of God. Uh, and if there's an anointing there, there you could tell they're drawing it from you. And if there's worship, they're getting in the spirit and, and so forth. But, but maybe they've come from too troubled of a life or they've never been discipled or they've never made the connection between uh between loving Jesus and obedience or, or any number of things, there's lots of people who actually experience God's spirit, but their character lags way behind. And uh, I'm not advocating for that, but I'm advocating that, uh, you know, seeming to have good fruit and so forth is, on, is really not enough. What God came to do is he wants to have a relationship with you. 
And he wants that relationship to be every bit as concrete as your relationship with your spouse or your kids. Or whether you like it or not, your relationship with your boss or your church members or whatever. He wants it to be a real relationship where you know his voice every day. So these words we're talking about now are not just academic. They have to be uh, something that you are growing in the experience of. And I would encourage you, if that's not the case, get counsel. Uh, consider uh, studying some things about fasting and praying to humble your afflict your soul. Uh, get you know, read some books about uh, the gospel and rethink your gospel. Uh, ask God if you've got really a deep enough understanding of your sin nature, so that you because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Um, you know. If, if you're not knowing the presence of God, you should that should be something that re, you're drastically upset about. And that you're crying out to God to, 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 to heal that and to resolve that uh, and to, to know his voice. Uh, it would be the same as having a relationship with a spouse and uh, you're living in different countries and you never talk on the phone and you don't Skype or email or... Or write letters. But it'd be more like if you're like, let's use a husband and a wife. We'll put it on the wife this time because you usually put it on the husband. Um, it'd be like a wife in that situation and her husband's writing her letters every day, but she files them away in hopes that someday she'll get around to reading them. <laughs> you know, uh, and you know, unfortunately, it's, we're finding out in the in the naturalistic, unbelieving, anti-supernatural culture of America, m more and more Christians are living there, and there's just no biblical precedent for that or basis. And uh, it's I'm really liking this church history book we're going to use. I rec recommend you uh, read chapter 47. Those of you who read my Kindle books, you can... Uh, download it and then then delete it because I can't have too many downloading it. But read chapter 47 because he really goes over the history of the fundamentalist modernist controversy and then out of that the missions movement and how we've exported American Christianity to the world. But because we also exported translating the Bible into native languages, the Christianity in each part, uh, in the what they call the the global South. Some people call it the 1040 window, but in uh, Central America, South America, Africa, then not always South, but Southeast Asia and so forth, and China, uh, the Christianity that is exploding there and growing 10 times faster than it is in, in America. In fact, America, it's shrinking except among Charismatics and Pentecostals. Um, in uh, all, other, all other forms of Christianity in America are actually declining in numbers. Um, in, in, in Western Europe, Christianity has declined so much that there's no country of Western Europe that's more than 3 or 4% Christian. And uh, most people say that half of the Christians in, in Europe uh, that claim to be Christian would, could only be counted as nominal Christians at this point. But Christianity is exploding worldwide, and it's exploding primarily in charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity. We're casting out demons, speaking in tongues, hearing the voice of God, prophesying, uh, all even raising the dead is normal, everyday church experience. And um, one of the things that this book really brings out is he actually goes through the history 
of how more and more uh, conservative Protestant American Christians uh, began to realize shortly after the Civil War that our Christianity didn't look very much like the Bible, and all of the theologies that have developed since then have been in order to make American Christians comfortable with that. Instead of to challenge American Christians to repent and, and, and get back to the biblical blueprint. So, you know, and if you really see it as, as God wants you to see it, you would see, you know, in, in America today, we're in desperate straits. Just look at our political and economic situation, if you don't believe me. <laughs> so, although I would rather not, because I think it's too late for solutions in that realm. The church has got to, to wake up and be restored. So moving on, that's uh, conversion is the next word in, in salvation. And all these words we're looking at about repentance, including conviction, confession, uh, contrition and repentance, which we'll finish repentance today, and then the next two weeks, renunciation and uh, restitution. Uh, all those words have to do with turning away from ourselves and self-determination and the world's ways and, and turning toward God. And the, even this problem I was just addressing wouldn't exist if we had true repentance in America. Uh, in fact, almost all contemporary approaches to the gospel emphasize God's forgiveness and God's reconciliation apart from any serious conviction of sin uh, and, and repentance and renunciation of evil and so forth. And we're, we're going to uh, continue to, uh, to bring that to, uh, to bear on us for the next um, three weeks. Um, uh, Roman numeral six, you'll see eight definitions of repentance. We'll refer back to those a couple times today, but down toward the bottom of page one, Roman numeral seven. We're, today I'm going to look at uh, uh, the idea of repentance versus remorse. I had actually planned to do renunciation, and actually my computer crashed at 4.30 in the morning and lost three hours of what I had done on renunciation. So uh, first time I ever had a Macintosh crash, but uh, but I lost uh, all of that. And... Uh, it was actually my first ever computer crash, although it has locked up a couple times before. Um, somewhat because we have Time Warner Cable Internet, which is not, is not delivering what they promised. All right, so let's look at remorse uh, divine, uh, defined and contrast that with true repentance. Because this is a very, very important concept. You really need to search your heart and make sure you're not experiencing remorse and you really are experiencing true repentance. Um, now, the problem with the term remorse is that the concept of remorse is spoken of in a variety of verses and a variety of different character studies or testimonies throughout the Bible, but the word remorse is not often used. So, some it, but, so you have to get the concept by, by studying the whole context. Um, Remorse has similarities with repentance, but it's missing several of the eight characteristics of repentance, especially uh, in the eight elements that are above you. Uh, numbers two, five, eight, two, and seven. We'll come back to that later. Remorse is false repentance masquerading as true repentance. Uh, remorse has, uh, expresses sorrow, 
but it's not focused toward God and others, but on the consequences we face, the cost we face. It uh, tends to be self-pity oriented and all about saving our reputation. That's one of the reasons confession of sins is so important because when you confess your sins, you're breaking that deep thing in the sinful man to care more about what man thinks about you than God. That's why it's absolutely necessary to confess your sins to another uh, Christian brother or sister who's competent to pray for you and, and hear your confession. Um. In most cases, remorse is, is only after being caught, and it tries to minify, minimize the ramifications for self-interest and for social status. In other words, that's um, remorse, you know, it, it, it's always a little bit of a clue if the person comes clean before, the, before it comes out. You always have to respect, or, or I'm sorry, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Be a little skeptical of. Um, you always have to be a little, I guess I'll just say a little skeptical of someone's repentance when they repent after they it becomes public and they've been caught. Now, that doesn't mean they can't still repent, but you just can't take it on face value at that point. There has to be a lot of other elements over time. And only God, and maybe that person, if God's granted them deep enough repentance that they're no longer self-deceived about the issue, uh, know whether they've repented or not. Those of us who are helping each other have to keep working and waiting to see. So I hope, I hope you're getting what I'm saying. Um, re, you know, repentance tends to be um, not toward God, but uh, in the sight of man. And true, true, uh, true repent. I'm sorry, remorse. Did I say repentance? Remorse tends to be not towards God, and in the sight of man. And true repentance is is as you will see in number eight is not only from the sin, uh, the attitudes, the motivations that led you to the sin, but it's also most importantly toward being restored to God. And that's why uh, you know there's seven what's called penitential psalms that uh, help us know repentance. And of course, the most famous are Psalms 32 and Psalm 51. And of course, David says, in sin, in sin I was conceived. And, uh, but, uh, um, I'm uh, you know, then he, he cries out to God and says, against thee and thee only I have sinned. Now, don't misinterpret that. He's really saying against thee primarily or in in a sense that's that it's it's the the rest of the sin goes out of the fact that i've only sinned against god it uh all all the breaking of the ten commandments in the bible the number one always represents the ten so the tithe represents the fact that all of your money is god's and you're stewarding it in the first commandment you shall have no other god besides me all sin is breaking that commandment. Stealing, adultery, murder, everything is breaking. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So interestingly, David, before he wrote Psalm 51, uh, not committed adultery. 
with with a guy's wife who had uh, left his people, become become a, a, a part of the people of God, gone through everything you have to do to become part of the people of God, and had even start, started serving in Israel's army. He'd left everything for the sake of God, and and David stole his wife. And then David uh, engaged in a very manipulative and deceptive cover-up to kill the guy <laughs> uh, so that he could try to hide the fact that she was pregnant with his baby and, and uh, marry her quick enough to, uh, uh, to not look too bad publicly, right? Now, um, David... You, you know, so that's a strange statement against thee and thee only I have sinned. Well, what about Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and, and the whole nation of Israel who you're supposed to be king of and Joab who you manipulated to do some wrong things in the army? You've sinned against a lot of people. But, all, but what he's trying to focus on is all our sins against people are first and foremost a sin against God. And the first and foremost issue, the reason we ask forgiveness of people for what we've done for them is primarily because we've sinned against them, uh, or it's partly because we've sinned against them, but primarily because we've sinned against God. You know, when, we've sit, when we do private sins, public sins, we've sinned against God, we've sinned against his church, we've sinned against his purpose, we've sinned against the image of God in us. So that's, um, you know, by way of introduction, flip over, uh, part number B on this uh, today. I'm going to try to give us four biblical case studies to sort of illustrate, and, and uh, you might want to just quickly review points 5, 2, uh, or 5, 8, 2, and 7. Number 5, notice that repentance is the gift of God and initiated by God. So we're going to see um, six, six biblical figures, and then uh, if we get time, I'm going to bring out one contemporary figure. Um, Six biblical figures, uh, in each case, they lived in the same time period and they were uh, had some sort of connection to each other and some sort of connection in some ways to the same sins. However, um, one of them uh, had remorse and the other was granted repentance. And it's very clear from Scripture that it's God that grants repentance. God foreknows, predestines, and elects all things. And he grants you the repentance in such a way that he makes it irresistible to, uh, to receive it. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. A verse everyone should memorize. Now, let's look first at Esau, who had remorse, and Jacob who it's arguable whether or not he needed repentance. But what happens in the Jacob-Esau uh, situation is that Jacob uh, connives and manipulates uh, Esau into selling the inheritance of being in the lineage of Christ and the people of God. And the Bible puts Jacob in the honor roll of faith for his lying and deceptions as it does Rahab the harlot. 
Rahab the harlot lied to the city officials when they came looking for the Israelites that she had hidden, and she said they went that way. And then after they left, she got the, she took them out of the stocks they were hiding in on the roof and said, I sent them that way, so you better go that way. <laughs> you know? And uh, don't forget me when you guys come conquer this place. And uh, they told her to tie a scarlet thread in her, uh, in her window, ironically. Uh, I wish I had time to talk about why scarlet's so important in that uh, particular biblical account. Uh, talk to me about it, about it at lunch if you want. But uh, it's fascinating um but uh jacob basically takes the inheritance of the kingdom and what gets down to is is esau didn't value god or his kingdom he had nothing in his heart toward god and it's very like the parable of the sower and the seed matthew 13 uh where there's four types of hearts that hear the word of the kingdom some people hear the word of the kingdom over and over and over again, as Jesus said, and they don't understand it. It just goes right on by them. Other people hear the word of the kingdom, and they receive it for a while, but they have no firm root in themselves. So when affliction and persecution arise, they fall away. Most people struggle with the third kind of soil, and especially in in America. Uh, that is, they hear the word of the kingdom, they receive it, but the word, the deceitfulness of riches and the worries about other things choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In America, we it's not just about the deceitful riches, and, and but it's that thing, the desire for other things. In America, we really like our comfort zones. We like to not have too much to do in the evening. We want to just come home and watch TV, and we want good air conditioning. And, uh, you know, uh, nothing against air conditioning. At least two of it, two guys in our church make their living by air conditioning. I love air conditioning. I have two full systems in my own, in one house. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not about letting it let me, slowing me down in terms of service to God. So Esau, let's read, uh, let's read uh, uh, Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, which is talking about Esau. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no, listen to this, immoral or godless person. He's saying that a, a, someone who allows a root of bitterness is an immoral or godless person, like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Remember how repentance is not primarily emotional, but it's intellectual and volitional. Because really, all Esau really cared about was he lost the inheritance uh, in terms of its short-term monetary ramifications of of uh, of you know of Isaac's uh, passing away in his in his businesses and fortunes, he really never got to a place where he cared about and understood what he had done, 
in not valuing. You know, the, I, I told that whole parable of the sower and the seed because you know the people who don't bear fruit, it's because they didn't put the proper value on the word of the kingdom. All three of the kinds that don't bear fruit undervalued the things of God in their life. And what scares me more than anything else about American Christianity isn't the bad theology and so forth. It's the lukewarmness. It's the compromise. It's the lack of studiousness. It's the lack of sacrifice. It's the lack of obedience. Um, it's the lack of zeal. It's a lack of putting value on God and his kingdom. And, and having our whole life demonstrate the value we're putting on him. Um, now, Matthew 18, 7 and Luke 17, 1, in the middle of both those verses, Jesus says, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. And actually, the word stumbling block is scandalizo, which is also the word, uh, although in that case it's not, in most cases it is, but it's also the word for offense. And, you know, I, I remember my, when my wife, dear wife Catherine, on the back porch one day, uh, really opened my eyes to this thing. And she, um, you know, I've always known that a root of bitterness will has terrible ramifications. But what she really helped me see is that God ordains by his grace in your life that offenses will come. He's ordained it to you, for people to treat you crappy. I'd like to say a little stronger word there, but some of us are too religious for that. But uh, I'm not. But uh, God, some people are going to really treat you badly. And some of those people are going to be very dear to you. And in some cases, maybe too spiritually immature to have ought to have done that. But you're going to have bosses, parents, pastors, best friends, your, what you thought was your closest brothers or whatever, offend you. It's part of walking with God. And it's a necessary part of walking with God because, you know, that's when Jesus talks about don't be offended Scandalizo, it actually means don't fall into the trap. Don't take the bait of when someone offends you, uh, automatically assuming the worst, or right away getting angry, and then beginning to uh, work and begin to hold on to some grudge. Instead of to, to do the biblical thing of uh, go and say, let's talk it through or whatever, and in some cases, that's not practical. Like, you know, like if you had ungodly parents or whatever, uh, you it might not actually be wise to, to deal openly with them about it because maybe they're not even that healthy for you. But you still have to forgive them. You have to. Um, and that's just something that every one of us will fa fa face. And in the New Testament uh, thinking... It's very similar to Esau disvaluing his inheritance because the number one uh, thing about repentance and all these words is that, you know, we try to skip all them and we try to emphasize forgiveness and reconciliation, but 
that what's important about them all is that they add up to forgiveness and reconciliation and restored relationship. And so what you're doing is cutting yourself off from grace in a relationship with God when you embrace unforgiveness or bitterness. And God will give you many opportunities to, to exercise the habit of being quick to forgive. And lots of you have heard my own testimony about that. Uh, and I wish I don't have enough time to, uh, to get into that or I'll not get into Saul and David, which is even more cool than Esau and Jacob. So and hopefully we'll get to Judas and Peter. So uh, let's move on to Saul and David. Uh, Saul, of course, had remorse. David had repentance. Uh, if you uh, read the book of First Samuel, which is arguably the toss-up with Genesis, is uh, to what's the most fun book in the Old Testament to read. Like, if you can't, if you don't like First Samuel, you're probably not breathing or something. It's wrong with you. But uh, I mean, it's chock full of you know the. All, all kinds of uh, historical stories, uh, character developments, fall, rise, falls. It's, it's fantastic. Um, and it's just plain good reading. But uh, after the Holy Spirit comes on, on Saul, as Samuel had prophesied in chapter 9, we see Saul for nearly four chapters. We don't know how long a period of years that was. But we see him by the Holy Spirit make some incredibly wise decisions like Solomon later and Christ Jesus later that are beyond natural wisdom. And he does so when he rescues Jabesh Gilead and so forth. And then uh, after the victory against Jabesh Gilead, uh, and God has raised up Saul in the sight of all Israel now because there were people who had opposed him and spoken out against him, all the people say, let's... Uh, bring to judgment all these people who resisted God raising you up and who spoke out against you. And Saul has the wisdom to say, God has given us a great grace of victory today. Uh, no, no one will be uh, brought to judgment today for any, anything. No one will be executed. Uh, and he, God further raised him up because of that posture of grace. So, but unfortunately, in, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15, Saul begins to make decisions that, that cause his demise and his fall. But even as late as chapter 15, had he repented, uh, he could have been saved. But instead, he has remorse. So let's look at some of this. Whenever you see the dot, dot, dots as we go through that, it's because I just didn't have enough... Uh, room on the page to put all the words and I even shrunk the type style down to 11 and a half points instead of my usual 12 point uh, so that uh, I could squeeze a little bit more in but so if you want to if you, you you know you'd be wise to read all three chapters the whole chapter now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel that is Saul waited but Samuel did not uh, come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him so Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he was finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Now, Samuel had specifically told Saul 
not to offer the burnt offering after the battle because he was the king and only the, the priest and prophets could offer the sacrifice, not the king. And one of the most important things about Israel's uh, way, uh, biblical way of doing things is like our, church, our country once had, we once had a division of governmental branches instead of the pre- president just off, you know, doing executive decrees and sending troops into war without any declaration of crime. We had, there, there actually used to be a time when, when the very three branches actually had to follow what the Constitution tells them to do. Uh, some of you, if you study church, if you study American history, you'll find times like that. But you have to go back a century or so. But um, you know, like obviously, the American government hasn't followed the Constitution at all since about 1914, and it just and worse. They've departed worse and worse and worse from it. But you know, Israel had times where they did and didn't, and were closer to God and further from God. So in the time when God had raised up Samuel, Samuel made it clear to Saul. It's not for the king to offer the sacrifices. Now, let's, let's go on from there. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people, notice that emphasis. It, it, for him, it was about his reputation, his power base, and the acceptance. Like Jesus said to the Pharisees, that they liked the respectful greetings in the marketplace, and they liked to take the seat of honor. That's what was, had, be, had begun to enter Saul's heart. Because I saw that the people were scattering from me that you did not come within the appointed days and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, uh, now the Philistines will come and down against Galgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. That's what I call, now notice how much uh, what I call VRG, verbalized religious garbage Saul th- throws out in these passages. He, you know, he just has spins and twists of BS. Um, so I forced myself and offered the burn offering. Samuel, like I, I, so I did a sacrifice. I, 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 I really laid down my life. And uh, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, which proved to be David. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept the command of the Lord. Now, in chapter 14, uh, Israel is going out to battle and Saul does a really foolish thing. He, he commands them to fast during the battle, no matter how long it takes. And I'm all for fasting, but like if you're... You know, let's say you're a football player. I probably wouldn't fast on the Friday before the Friday night high school football game and go go into the Friday night football game on a three-day fast, you know, because uh, around the third day you start to get a little weak. That's why seven days makes one week. No, uh, plan work. Just so, so, but then Jonathan, uh, God gives Jonathan great victory. But it, uh, it comes out that God's upset because someone had broken the king's command and they, just, they do lots and everything and they find out that Jonathan had eaten some honey. Uh, and it had brightened him up and strengthened him in the battle. And so Saul, again, foolishly says, you shall surely die. But the people have to step in and say, wait a minute, God has given us a great victory. 
No one will be, will be executed today. No one will be judged. And it's the exact reversal of what Saul had the wisdom to do after the battle with Jabesh Gilead, and now he's lost his wisdom, and he's lost the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the ability to hear from God. And he's, he's just operating out of his own natural wisdom. And he's still being very religious about it. That's why he's fasting and, and it, there's all sorts of stuff in the chapter about the way, proper way to do the sacrifice and all this stuff. He's being very religious, but it, now it's become religion. It's not, it's not reality. It's not relationship. And um, first, so that you, you can read that for yourself in 1 Samuel 14. I'm going to try to get through in the five minutes we got left, at least uh, the rest of Sam, this. Uh, then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now listen, therefore, to the words, I say, Lord, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now, if you go back to the, to the books of Moses, you'll see that, that Amalek betrayed Israel in their, in, in their journey in the wilderness. And God said that he would make war against Amalek over all the generations until he utterly destroyed him. That prophecy was fulfilled over a 500-year period. And um, so he tells him, now go strike down Amalek and utterly destroy them, put to death both men, women, child, ox, donkey, sheep, everything. Uh, then, you know, he, does, he spares Agag and the best of the sheep. And so Samuel... Uh, goes to see him the lord says i regret i made saul king he's turned back from following me he's not carrying out my commands anymore uh so saul uh comes to confront uh samuel come uh saul, samuel comes to confront saul and uh and saul greets him with more vrg blessed are you of the lord i have carried out uh the command of the lord but samuel said oh yeah I'm paraphrasing. What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God? Or wait, the lowing of the oxen, where did I? Um, okay, that, which I hear. So Saul said, uh, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of them, made the sacrifice again. Though you were little, you know, I keep jumping lines, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. In other words, we partially obeyed God, but we had good religious reasons for doing it. We're going we're gonna to enjoy a sacrifice, which means we're going to eat the feast of it, of course. Uh, um, and uh, then Saul, Samuel says, Is it not true that when you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribe of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites? until they're exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice. Samuel said, as the Lord is much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, and you'll notice that's very similar to the wording in Psalm 51, 10 through 13, of uh, the penitential Psalm, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of ram. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity, or rebellion is another word for that, and idolatry. 
Because you have, you, you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Now, notice Saul's response. Again, it's very similar to what we said at the beginning. When somebody repents after it's become public and the words come out on them, you have to be a little skeptical because now he's nailed. He, you know, he's, you know, he, every argument he's given Saul or Samuel, Saul, that Saul has given Samuel, Samuel has proven it's nonsense in front of everyone. So Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed. He finally admits it, the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people. Notice there's actually, uh, he's not saying, you know, like, wow, I have the fear of man, God forgive me. He's kind of subtly blaming it on the people. And, he list, and I've listened to their voice. How many husbands have said, because my wife said I should do this, that's why I said, or vice versa. Uh, you know, when your wife is speaking the word of God, listen to it and submit it to it. When she's not, don't listen to it and don't submit to it, and vice versa. When your husband's speaking the word of God, you better listen to it. When he's not, you better confront him. Um, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So he's all he's... Now, earlier in these chapters, he had made... Uh, uh, Saul actually made a monument to himself. Wow. So, and the rest is all downhill for uh, Saul the rest of his life. Now, Judas versus Peter, we have ran out of time to get into that. I, w I will tell you that um, Judas, it says he had uh, in uh, Luke, Luke uh, 24, verse 3, that Judas felt remorse, and he went and took the coins back to the, to the chief priest and all this and so forth. But Judas didn't have true repentance. And in fact, you can see the elements of self-pity, and he, he's not turning toward God. Uh, and, and, and therefore he goes and hangs himself, which is, you know, the ultimate sin against God that you could possibly commit, uh, murdering the image of God. Peter denies Jesus three times, with cursing and swearing, and he goes out and weeps, but he's obviously granted repentance. And in fact, if you notice, he said, when Jesus said I, that, I, I'm telling you, you're going to deny me three times. Peter was trusting in his own solical, apart from grace, character and his discipline and self and maturity and his emotional feeling, I will never deny you. And God was using it to break him so he would have to become a spiritual man. And he's saying, you know, Jesus, I'm strong. I'll be strong. Don't worry. When the chips are down, I'm going to be there. And, uh, and he was trusting in himself. And God allowed it to be a great experience of brokenness because God wanted Peter to have a different kind of love for him. He had a very emotional love for him. They had some history together. But God wanted him to have a kind of love for, for Jesus that only God can give. And that's why all three restorations of of Peter in the book of John after the resurrection, he says, Peter, do you love me? So, 
And, and uh, Peter has now realized, and he, we, he actually weeps and cries at that point. He realizes, I can only love God by his grace and his strength. I would deny God in a minute if he wasn't sustaining my love for him. Lastly, Pete Rose, even though we're late. Um, I, it's probably the best modern example I ever know. Pete Rose is a baseball player who uh, approximately 1984, I think, uh, uh, bet on baseball. And there's, you know, there's sins in life, but there's sins against the game. You know, it's one thing to sin. Let, like, let's say you're uh, an owner of a business or a partner in a business and you're stealing from the other partners. Let's say you're a pastor and you're stealing from the church. There's, uh, let's say you're married and you're cheating on your wife. There's sins, but there's sins against the game, you might say. And to bet on baseball when you're a baseball player is the, is the greatest grievance a baseball player could do. And so when he got caught, he denied it until the case became too strong uh, that he had to eventually admit. And actually, he's never clear, he's never clearly admit. The case became too strong. He was kicked out of baseball and so forth. And ever since then, he has basically said, argued, um, and he publicly makes statements all the time, I've paid a big price for this. But he's never said he did anything wrong. And he, and he basically says, please let me stop paying the big price for this and be reinstated to baseball in the Hall of Fame. And the Cincinnati Reds organization back down and in, in, uh, in, inducted him into the, their Hall of Fame, even though he's banned from baseball. So they basically stood up to the whole league, baseball league and said, we're going to do our own thing. But they were wrong to do so uh, because he's never admitted he was wrong. And he's clearly, even if he eventually admits he's wrong, he, He's a long way from true repentance on it. And you, you have to have true repentance to have forgiveness and to be restored and reinstated. Amen.